0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I'm going to be interviewing some of the unsung heroes of the disabled community. Today, I want to introduce you to Chloe Timms. Chloe Timms is expecting her debut novel, The Sea Women, to come out this summer. She is a podcast host and is an amazing campaigner in the disabled community. I'm so excited to jump into this conversation.
1: I never saw anyone that was disabled. I didn't want to be disabled. I didn't want disabled friends. I didn't want to see myself as that. And I remember one friend saying to me once, oh, I don't think of you as disabled. And I remember thinking that was like the best compliment in the world. Freedom for me happens through writing. So I suppose it's a natural thing for me to explore in the story because like I said, imagination is the only limit even though I was in a wheelchair I wasn't able to do the high kicks I wasn't able to do the dance routines I cannot sing to save my life but being a Spice Girls fan made me feel like empowered the pandemic has changed things for me now more than ever I'm so passionate about disability rights and equality. And I always was, but now it's kind of feels more heightened.
0: Chloe, thank you so much for joining us today on The Wheelchair Activist. I'm so excited to talk to you and learn all about your career and the book that you have coming out this summer. And yeah, just thank you so much for making the time.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Emma. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today.
0: Amazing. So... Firstly, um, do you want to tell our wonderful listeners a little bit about you and yeah, who you are, what you do?
1: Yeah, so um, I've got a uh, spinal muscular atrophy, same as you, and um, I'm from the Kent coast. Have lived in Kent my whole life. I started um, my life, I suppose, as my working life as a primary school teacher. I went to university, studied psychology and then got into teaching through that and I had quite a a short teaching contract so I was teaching for about three years and then when my contract ended I decided I didn't want to be a teacher for life so I kind of went back to university and did a Mm. master's in creative writing because writing's always been a love of mine and I sort of thought it was never something I thought I could make a career of because it's one of those things where despite kind of popular belief it's not very lucrative in terms of money um, when I was growing up uh, my parents were always like get a job that's in demand because then you'll always have a job my mum had this obsession when I was younger that I should be a speech therapist because she said they were they were always in demand so but I didn't get into speech therapy <laughs> ah. and so um so yeah so I went back to university did a master's and kind of thought I'm going to take my writing seriously and so uh i I mainly work part time now doing kind of freelance uh writing work and um I also do social media for a small business um but yeah my my kind of writing career has has kind of just started really so my debut novel comes out in June this year um called the sea Women and it feels like I've been writing it for ages because it first started well it first started life as a poem. But that was in 2014 so a long time ago <laughs> but now it's finally uh become a novel and I'm really excited for it to come out in the summer
0: and I am so so excited to read it I've been reading the sort of you know those clips of other amazing writers saying how amazing it is and one person described it as fiercely feminist mm-hmm. and I thought well that that is being sold directly to me. I am on board. <laughs> but no, I'm, that's so interesting um, that you made the transition from teaching into eventually mm-hmm. writing, sort of, and making that your main career. I think it's, it's so interesting as well. You said that your parents wanted you to do a career that was always in demand and, you know, speech therapy, yeah. That's kind of a unique one to to recommend, isn't it? <laughs> I don't
1: know whether it was, whether in the 90s it was in the news that there was like a shortage or something. And uh, my mum kind of latched onto that and she was like, you need to get into speech therapy. But mm-hmm. I never was interested, so it didn't work out.
0: Oh, fair enough. My parents wanted me to be a lawyer, but I did go one step further. I actually did do my law degree, but here we are. I'm working for a charity <laughs> doing a podcast on disability um mm-hmm. so uh, yeah you mentioned that you have spinal muscular atrophy which like you said same as me um, yeah. i think for any of our listeners that don't know about spinal muscular atrophy so first of all it's a progressive muscle wasting condition it affects all of our muscles um and we are for the most part predominantly wheelchair users um, you know I I'm an electric wheelchair user you're a wheelchair user Um, but for other people who also don't know I hope I can have you agree with this a lot of us think think we're in a very elite group that we are I don't know I feel like we all know each other we're all really ambitious people mm. so I think we're in good company what do you think
1: yeah definitely I mean I know there's there's people with SMA doing incredible things I mean um when I was when I was a kid I used to go to the Jennifer Trust conferences that were held in Stratford-upon-Avon where Jennifer Trust is now um, SMA UK I think and it was basically a big gathering of kids young adults and we'd take over a hotel for the entire weekend and there I met people like Tess Daly who's now gone on to being an incredible influencer on Instagram, um, Martin Sibley, who's doing amazing things, um, so many people that have gone on to do to have amazing careers and just um, you know are really inspiring to me as well. And and I think well, I was always told, and I don't know how true this is. I think it, they still say it, but who's done the survey? I don't know. But they they've said that people with SMA are kind of above average intelligence, but I don't I don't know how true that is. But I've heard it.
0: So I was always told the same thing as a child. And my first proper job outside of after university was at Muscular Dystrophy UK. And so muscular dystrophy Mm -hmm. is a sort of an umbrella term for a lot of muscle wasting conditions of which SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, is one. And as part of our orientation, we had to do a quiz on... Um, muscle wasting conditions to see sort of how much we knew. And it was a true or false type quiz. And so it gave statements about some of the larger known conditions of muscular dystrophy. And one of the questions on SMA was true or false. People with SMA are are, on average more intelligent than people without SMA. And I thought, "Um, Mm -hmm. yes, true. Quit that. (laughs) I got it wrong. And I was devastated I thought this can't (laughs) be right what is going on so no I but I'm gonna choose to believe that as well
1: yeah it's a good thing to believe
0: yeah absolutely um so I want before we get into what your book is about and what your podcast is about as well that you've recently started I have a fairly Mm -hmm. big question for you and it's something that I ask all of the guests on this podcast it's what does disability mean to you
1: yeah it's such an interesting question because I listened to your first episode with Elizabeth and I was struck by how similar her answer kind of resonated with me because um and I think you said yourself that you started with quite a negative attitude in your in your life towards disability very much Mm. kind of a rejection of it um you know, growing up, I didn't really have, well, and like, apart from going to the Jennifer Trust conference, I never saw anyone that was disabled. I didn't want to be disabled. I didn't want disabled friends. I didn't want to, I didn't want to see myself as that. And, you know, I, I remember, I remember one friend saying to me once, oh, I don't think of you as disabled. And I remember thinking that was like the best compliment in the world. And I kind of, mm. I feel like to me, That obviously I think many of us have like that internalized ableism and I still think it's a learning process because I would still say I still feel that at times um whether it's something I'll ever get over I don't know because I certainly can't tell you today that I'm proud of being disabled but I, I I am happy in myself and I don't I don't feel that negative feeling. I mean, I've never felt that whole, you know, "woe is me," my life's terrible. I've always been like a, a happy person, and and you know, you know, I love my life. I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have the life that I've got. But obviously, there are big downsides, and I think when we talk about the social model, which obviously a lot of it is so true to life, the fact that our our situations are made worse by societal um, obstacles I think it's hard when you have a progressive condition because you feel yourself getting weaker and things becoming more difficult so it's hard to kind of just see that as simply societal because mm. there are days where I'm like god wouldn't it be nice if I could just go to the toilet like everyone else and it took two seconds rather than you know half an hour plus plus. Yeah. Um, and things like you know, I love food. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of eating and food and everything like that. And I can't cook because I can't physically cook, but I would love to be able to do that. And there is a part part of me that I don't, I don't feel kind of sad that I can't, but some days I'm just like, oh, I really wish I could. It doesn't kind of fill my mind every day. I don't sit here yeah. feeling sorry for myself, but I definitely feel like there's been a real shift in my attitude towards disability myself um i think i said to you before um when you were asking on twitter about kind of role models now someone like nina tame on instagram is amazing and even i've only followed yeah. her for a few years but she's even changed my thought process in recent times you know things that she's said and i've thought made me yeah. reassess the way i look at things myself and the whole kind of feeling of being a burden which you know I'll be honest I still do feel sometimes but it's definitely made me think I shouldn't feel that way and I shouldn't have to feel that way but then I think as well things Mm. like the pandemic has really made things harder I've, I've I've kept saying to people during the pandemic well even I say it like it's the past obviously we're still living through it but I've never felt more different more disabled than in covid times because i've i've noticed hmm. well i mean i don't know whether you've felt it as well but certainly people were not shy about their attitudes of well why don't you just why don't you just stay indoors and let the rest of us get on with our lives um and i yeah. certainly you know i've got a great social life you must have a great social life I don't want to stay indoors forever. I want to go out, meet my friends. I want to do mm. things. And it. Uh, I think the pandemic has changed things for me in that now more than ever, I'm so passionate about disability rights and equality. And I always was, but now it's kind of feels more heightened.
0: I think that that's really interesting. And sort of while you were speaking about the impact of the pandemic. I don't know if you felt this, but I saw a lot of people right at the beginning of lockdowns, um, a lot of disabled people were saying that they finally felt on a bit more of a level playing field with non-disabled people, because for so many disabled people, we face physical barriers, which prevent us from going out and doing things or societal mm. issues. But when lockdown happened, we were all working from home. We were all at risk of becoming seriously unwell until I saw some disabled people saying that they felt it was a little bit of an equalizer. And mm. I can't say that I completely agreed with that, but I understood where they were coming from at that initial point. But I couldn't agree with you more about in sort of where we are now with the pandemic of people, even the prime minister saying, we just need to learn to live with COVID. We have to get on with it. And Mm. I can imagine, you know, our reactions that were very similar, being angry, being insulted and feeling incredibly frustrated. And I completely agree with you that I very much want to get back to my own my old life you know before COVID you know you and I were just saying before this call that the first time that we actually met was at Houses of Parliament and you know I I haven't been there for over two years now and you know it was somewhere that I was used to going frequently for work and traveling into London three times a week commuting to work and all of that's just gone. And it's it's a really difficult um, position to be in right now. I think as a disabled person. Yeah,
1: definitely. I um, I think it's particularly hard because now it's that when Boris Johnson talks about personal responsibility, for many people, they'll their attitude is, oh well, I'll go out and live my life. And if I get the virus, I'm pro- I'll probably be fine. For disabled people, it's more of a case of, to me, I, I, I feel it's like we have to make a decision between dying and kind of having a life. Yeah. And that's not to say that we will necessarily get it and die. But it is, I, fi- I found, I don't know about you, but I found it incredibly difficult when we made the transition of shielders were still meant to shield, but everyone else could start going out again. And I felt like that was the worst time because there were many people online and I had to kind of stop myself from going on Facebook and and things and reading kind of below the the line on articles and stuff where uh, non-disabled people were like, oh, we just need to get on with it. And, you know, if people are scared, they can just stay inside. And I thought, well, I have to have carers come in who are mixing with the public, I cannot self-isolate. I cannot shut the door of my room and yeah. have no contact with the outside world because I have to have contact with the outside world to survive. And I know I really struggled mentally in the in the first lockdown particularly because I am such a sociable, pers- sociable person. I love going out, meeting my friends, you know, going up to London for the day, um, you know I before the pandemic I'd be going up to London kind of at least once a month and then to have that kind of completely cut off and not be able to see everyone I mean thankfully we've got the internet and we've got um you know great then that's what you said it was like that in a way when everyone was at home and we were doing you know I was like everyone doing doing zoom quizzes every yeah. week and you knew that was the only way you could socialize you know, that was that was lovely and lovely in a sense that we could do it, but when you get to the point where you have to make that choice, whether you have a social life or you don't, and it could be the difference between catching the virus and not, it's just such an impossible decision to make. Because you know, I don't I don't know how I would react to it because I've got a, a really poor lung capacity and Uh, I, you know, I would cope badly with any kind of cough, let alone COVID. Um, But at the same time, living at home and never going out again would destroy me. So how do you make that decision? I still don't know the answer to that. And I don't think anyone does.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, like you, I definitely found it difficult when people started going out again and sort of hearing people and seeing people on social media um, saying, you know, oh, I went to the pub finally, or I did this, I did that. And even if there weren't things that I necessarily wanted to do, it was, wow, you have that choice. And it sort of reminds me of what you were saying at the beginning of our conversation about sort of thinking, Mm -hmm. wow, what's that like to have that choice have that freedom and have that feeling of safety going out and about whereas for us that's just it's not our reality and it's it's really difficult to not feel envious I suppose in a way Mm -hmm. um but I suppose you know we we're in a very difficult time I think to be disabled um you know particularly now with even the requirement to self-isolate if you've tested positive being taken away which i couldn't disagree with more um but i suppose it'll be interesting to because obviously Mm -hmm. like you said your book comes out in june of this year sort of how are you feeling about potentially doing you know any interviews or press or anything or readings that may require you to go out and about sort of how are you feeling about that
1: yeah it's a tough one because obviously during lockdown there were so many more online events hybrid events have are still around but they're a much smaller deal than they used to be um I am a member of the Society of Authors and there's a specific group which is for um disabled authors and authors with uh chronic illnesses And there's a very active campaign at the moment to keep events hybrid, to try and create events that are for everyone. Because obviously, um, online virtual events are inclusive for a lot more people. They're not ideal for some people, particularly um, people with um, hearing difficulties. But hopefully, the more we do them, the more that can be improved. I'm kind of, I want to do events in person. I want to have that kind of new author experience and you know I'd love to go to festivals. I I still feel slightly apprehensive, obviously not knowing what's ahead. Hopefully summertime we're looking at lower cases. Um it does concern me that obviously that the self-isolation rules are not going to be enforced anymore. That you might get people think, oh well I've got tickets to this event I'm going to go anyway. Um but I'm going to I'm going to sort of maybe it sounds kind of reckless, but I'm going to try and do as much as I can do, because I feel like I want to I want to be I want to be visible as well in the industry as as a disabled author, because I spoke to my publicist. We had we had our first meeting in November and I was very much like, look, I want to come to the office and see you and meet everyone to have that full experience to show you that I'm here. Um, But also because I said to her, like, I'm not interested in being the disabled inspiration for non-disabled people, but I really want to be that person for maybe younger Mm. disabled people who are interested in, like, the creative arts and in writing. Because I don't know anyone when I was growing up that was visually disabled, that was, that was a writer or an author and I would have loved that kind of representation when I was younger and I would love to be that person that kind of just shows you can do it and you can it's you know to be a writer is a dream for many people but it's for me writing is such a leveller because yeah. when you're writing your characters can do anything they can do things that I can't do they can do wild things that anyone can't do so um I think The imagination is is open for everyone. I would like to be that kind of, that person that inspires other disabled people, I think.
0: I really love that. You know, it seems like the only limitation that an author can really experience is their own imagination. And, you Mm. know, it's not, has nothing to do with impairment. nothing to do with physical disabilities. So, no, I really love that. Can you tell us what your amazing book is about? Just give us a little little bit of an idea.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, one of the descriptors of my book, which some people have said, is it's kind of like the handmaid's tale meets the shape of water. So it's a dystopian novel with a kind of magical element. And it's about a young woman called Esther, who's raised by her grandmother on a very cold isolated island which is cut away from uh cut off from the rest of society and run by a very um strict religious cult and they have very uh, firm beliefs about who women are and what they're supposed to be and the kind of the goal of the island is to reach salvation and they have this great fear that the outside world and also The creatures living in the sea, which they know as the sea women, are going to destroy their idea of salvation. So they have to follow some very kind of uh, pious teachings. And Esther knows she's got her future all mapped out for her. She knows she'll have to marry and have children, but her curiosity gets the better of her. And one day she does something which gives her a taste of freedom and also changes the world. That she knows, and everything starts to unravel.
0: That was the best sort of teaser into your book. (laughs) I think I have ever heard. I I'm I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm so excited to read it. But where did the sort of inspiration behind this come from? Do you think it's more informed by your experience as a woman, or your experience as a disabled person, or is it a little bit of both?
1: Um, It's interesting because when I first started writing the book, it was actually from a man's perspective and it was very different. Ah. (laughs) And then I just, I guess it's like everything uh, I've said to you, you know, my, my understanding of kind of myself and the world has changed, has developed and I knew in my heart of hearts i wanted to write this book from a female perspective it was very important for me to tell a woman's story and i realized actually it was the woman's story that was the heart of the novel and so one day i kind of scrapped everything i'd written which is a horrible idea to to have to know that you need to scrap every single word you've written but i decided to do it and i started again and i decided to write it from uh a woman's perspective instead and i sort of uh i can't give away the character that the story was originally um the point of view of because that would spoil too much, too much. but i kind of went back in time and told it from a woman's perspective instead and it just works so much better and mm-hmm. i think it's difficult because i know there's there's almost a pressure being disabled to write about disabled people and disabled issues disabled characters and personally like I I gave an interview recently where I said what I would love is to read like the next Bridget Jones but with a disabled woman or a wheelchair user in the main role because to me that would be amazing I don't think I am the person to write it but I would love to read that and I just think I I don't think disabled writers should have to write about disability I think I want to one day but I don't feel like I'm in that place yet that I'm ready to write about it but I also feel Mm. like we shouldn't have to be pigeon pigeonholed and we shouldn't have to just write disabled stories exclusively but I definitely feel there needs to be more disabled characters in fiction and particularly in like you know just kind of like like I'd love a rom-com with a disabled character I think that'd be amazing especially uh I mean particularly for me I mean I know there are there are um some particularly in young adult fiction there's a lot more disabled characters lately um and a lot more representation which is amazing personally because I am in a wheelchair I'd love to see some more um kind of wheelchair representation that would be great um but yeah I guess so a lot of the novel is kind of about a woman wanting freedom and feeling kind of trapped and I guess maybe that does tap into something kind of unconscious in myself um and that kind of feeling of I don't know I, I guess freedom for me happens through writing so I suppose it's a natural thing for me to explore in the story because like I said imagination is the, is the only limit so yeah mm-hmm. there there isn't anything I'd say specifically about being a disabled woman in this novel but I think naturally you put your, so much of yourself into your writing that it's got to be in there somewhere.
0: Yeah, I completely agree, and I would also love to read a Bridget Jones-style book, but with a wheelchair user as you know, as the main character, I think that would be amazing. Um, so I wanted to ask you, has anyone ever told you or made you feel that you can't do the job that you're doing now?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't think, I think there's a, I suppose there's a kind of uh Stigma of like we, like we said. I mean, we joked about people with SMA having above-average intelligence, but I guess there's a from a more general public point of view, perhaps a perception that if you're in a wheelchair, it's more than just a physical disability. Perhaps you've got a learning disability as well. And I know I remember once when I was about ten and so in Kent we still have grammar schools and I had a place at a grammar school and I remember I was visiting my grandma and there was this woman at at a coffee morning and my grandma had said to her oh my granddaughters she's going to this school and the grammar school blah 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 and uh the woman sort of looked at me and was and kind of like patted my hand and was like are you yes I'm sure you are as if like I was making it up (laughs) and I've got to say like I don't think that happens as much now like I certainly haven't I don't I don't seem to meet that kind of same attitude now um and certainly everyone that I've met professionally kind of as a writer has really not treated me like that at all it's been amazing like Friends of mine that I've met, kind of through courses, writers' courses, writing tutors, um, like my agent, my editor, they've all been amazing, and they're kind of, they're just, they just, and it sounds, I don't know what, whether I should kind of use this phrase, but like they treat me like I'm normal, <laughs> uh, which I know is a is a yeah. ridiculous phrase to use, but you know what I mean. It's kind of like, um, there's no, there's no awkwardness, which is really nice, and I and I think um with writing I mean my agent requested my manuscript she kind of found me rather than me approach her for representation which is a, a really unusual way of it of it happening but she saw my first chapter of my novel which actually is very similar to the novel that's being published in June and she saw that and she contacted me within hours of reading it and just said I love it, can we please have a phone conversation? And she had no idea I was disabled then. Um, but it hasn't made any difference in that respect. I know through the um, Society of Authors group, there are people that do worry about kind of how they're going to be treated in the industry. And it's hard to know because obviously um, people in the industry, on, on an individual basis, they may have their own um Stereotypical views or um prejudices, but the people I've met have been amazing and um, I mean I think hopefully the work speaks for itself rather than mm. um, them having any kind of preconceived idea of of what a disabled person would be like.
0: I think that that's wonderful to hear that you've had such a positive experience. your story about that. Woman, the friend of your grandmother's who patted your hand. I wish I couldn't empathize with that as much as I do. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's there are so many preconceived ideas of what we can and can't do, and I think that was a huge reason why I wanted to do this podcast was because I think so many disabled people may assume that they can only go into certain walks of life or certain types of work due to their Mm -hmm. disability but that just absolutely is not the case and I really wanted to try and provide that representation which you said you would have really appreciated when you were growing up and I know I would have as well um who were your role models growing up with were there any disabled role models or yeah just who who were they
1: um well when I was thinking about this question I came up with an answer which was kind of hilarious so I I definitely didn't have any disabled role models I can't even think I think the only kind of famous wheelchair user that I could think of at the time was like Stephen Hawking so like and uh, you know I was never going to be a physicist so that was kind of out of the question, um, and so kind of thinking of this is going to sound really stupid, but my 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 non-disabled role model was Jerry Halliwell from The Spice Girls. I love this.
0: <laughs> Tell me more.
1: The Spice Girl, and this is—I mean, I'm a 33-year-old woman, so this is going to sound ridiculous, but The Spice Girls changed my life because they were just so empowering. I think I was like eight years old when I first saw them on Top of the Pops and they were just so, I mean, I know maybe perhaps I've recently watched a documentary about their version of girl power and how so much of it was tied down with like capitalism. But but to me, they were the first, I guess, feminists I'd seen. And really, you know, the whole girl power thing, yes, it's a bit basic, but it really, as as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old girl, I was like yeah girls can do stuff girls are amazing you know these are these like really loud opinionated women who were you know great performers they they fought for I think they fought for like um songwriting credits on their on their records um mm. I loved that they were kind of like sexy and they they wore like amazing outfits and you know, I wanted to be Jerry Halliwell. I bought myself a Union Jack dress from the local market and the white platform trainers. And to me, she was just amazing. <laughs> and I think it was like even though I was in a wheelchair, I wasn't I wasn't able to do the high kicks. I wasn't able to do the dance routines. I cannot sing to save my life. But being a Spice Girls fan made me feel like empowered. And mm. I still, I still think that even though it does seem slightly, slightly ridiculous, like that was a kickstart into like loving being a woman and feeling like I could achieve things, not a singing career, but <laughs> but other things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just and and they were kind of, I guess, yeah, I wanted to be a Spice Girl, and that was that was my, I mean, I. When Jerry left The Spice Girls, I cried so much that my mum had to go into school and tell my teacher that I'd been crying all weekend. Oh, bless <laughs> so, uh, you! That's how committed I was.
0: <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this, but um, have you seen Adele doing the carpool karaoke with James Corden? Did you see that? Yeah, back? I did. Yeah, um, a couple of yeah, and she said that it was the exact same for her. That you know, when Jerry Hallowell left Spice Girls, it was. Her... Her first sort of feeling of heartbreak. Mm. And I mean, it, I think it's so interesting that that's your example, but I totally, totally get it. You know, it's about female empowerment. And it's, I, I have to admit, I didn't really understand. I, I knew what feminism was, but I don't think I truly identified with it properly until. I listened to the Guilty Feminist mm-hmm. podcast um and realized that there are so many different ways to be a feminist and to sort of live by those ideals and it's okay if you don't get it perfectly right all the time um but it's it's so empowering to see someone sort of break the mold of what we might consider women to be or we once considered mm. women to be and I yeah you know, I really do understand with the the Spice Girls um you know sort of what that meant to you yeah
1: like I said uh, I, I it was it's funny that in some ways they were not that relatable but it spoke it still spoke to me and I think many women who grew up kind of in that era were roughly the same age kind of felt that too and it's it it does seem kind of silly years later because obviously my understanding of feminism um has evolved like you know I I'm a lot more politically engaged than I was obviously as a child but I guess it's a it's a it's a first it's the first step of understanding um kind of equality and also that that fight for equal rights and I, I think that ties in Obviously, we talk about intersectional um, feminism and, and it ties into like our understanding of equality across the board.
0: Yeah, I think that aspect of intersectional feminism is so interesting. And for people who aren't familiar with that term, it's sort of looking at the common barriers or the common issues that are faced by women, but then also the specific ones that are faced by disabled women or women of color. And I think mainstream feminism can often forget that disabled women face unique challenges on the basis of their sex and their disability. Um, So it's, it's really important that feminists are aware that there are lots of different women's issues and they're not going to all apply to everyone but to make sure that you're amplifying all of the voices within the wonderful community of women or people who identify as women um so that's it's really interesting to sort of hear your experience of evolving Mm -hmm. feminism who would you say your role models are now
1: oh that's so tough um gosh I don't know I couldn't name like I said to you earlier um I think if you don't if you don't follow Nina Tame on Instagram please make sure you do because she is an incredible voice uh, not just about um ableism and disabled voices but she's an amazing feminist as well and I just think uh you know, that she's someone that I just think, oh, I just love what she's doing. She just makes these brilliant um Instagram reels and um yeah, yeah she's just fantastic and, and I just she's someone where I feel like she really gets it and she like I said, she opens my mind as well and she makes me and I, I it's funny but when we were talking about earlier kind of feelings about being disabled and disability and I feel kind of guilty for the way that I used to feel and maybe some of the lingering internalized ableism that I have and the fact that I kind of at 18 I, I decided to I kind of quit hospital which is a weird thing to say but I kind of stopped seeing anyone um up in London kind of all my specialists because I they kind of wrote me off their books for kind of children's services and stuff and I was like I'm not going back I'm not gonna see a specialist and I'm gonna Kind of go it alone, and then I got to kind of my mid twenties and thought, well, that was a stupid thing to do because now I don't have any contacts and I didn't have anyone, didn't wasn't in touch with anyone, kind of in the SMA community, and I feel I still feel like I missed a chunk of my life because I cut myself off because I was very much like I don't need help, I don't need the support of the disabled community, and now I think, God, I, I see how valuable it is and to share common experiences and to be a part of it and to to have those people that know what you're going through because obviously we've all got non-disabled friends that can empathize but it's not the same like as much as people can go oh I understand it must be terrible of this this you know this this issue and and uh you know just yesterday I went to a restaurant with my friend and I would booked a table and I would put in the notes, you know, wheelchair accessible table, please. And then we arrived at the restaurant and it was very clear that they had not thought because they tried to shove me at the back of the restaurant and oh, no. uh, through a very narrow gap. And then I could see the, the kind of manager looking around panicked because she was going to have to ask a, a couple to move from their table so I could sit there. And my friend just sort of like rolled her eyes at me, and I was like, "See what I have to go through all the time?" Um, and it's one of those things where you just have to go. Yeah, you know, you have to brush it off because. And that, this okay, this is completely off topic, but one of my pet hates at the moment is when you when you when you're looking for somewhere to go and eat, and the restaurants have all this information about their restaurant. They have things. I looked at a restaurant website the other week to book something for my birthday, and they had this page which was like about the restaurant and it had all this information of uh, where to park and if you could you could bring your own wine but you have to pay a corkage fee and this whole page and not one mention of whether they were wheelchair accessible. And I'm like, literally it would take one sentence and mm-hmm. you haven't done it so now I'm going to have to email you and ask. And that's my one pet hate at the moment. But yeah, I, yeah. I see now that how valuable it is to have that disabled community around you And I wish I could go back to my past self and go, you know, this is not going to make you less disabled by by cutting everyone off. But it's kind of that, um, like I say, it's kind of internalized ableism, which I'm learning to uh, to shed. And hopefully uh, one day I will be free of all that horrible baggage and uh, will fully embrace the kind of I'm trying to get to that point, I think.
0: I think that's really interesting what you said about sort of a almost sounds like a regret that you have of not engaging with the disabled community before it. I wanted to ask you this because I definitely felt this way that when I was sort of a child and my parents you know I, I did any activity that I ever wanted to do, you know, extracurricular activity. And my parents knew that I loved ballet, loved dance. So they put me in a sort of wheelchair dance class. Um, so all of the other pupils were wheelchair users and I hated it. I It wasn't because I didn't like dance, but I felt really like conspicuous I guess and I felt more Mm. disabled being around other disabled people at an age when I didn't I didn't identify as disabled I wasn't ready to engage with the disabled community in that way I just want does that resonate with you at all?
1: A 100% it really does it's it's so funny isn't it because I think like you said in my head I, I wasn't disabled and I was so like it's almost like, well, I'm not like them. I don't need, I don't need to be part of the the, the disabled dancing yes. group because I'm not like that. Um, I I can't remember. I know I've, I there know there must have been specific things like that, and I I think I knew. I think my parents knew I was uncomfortable with that sort of thing, and I think as well because um, you do tend to get if you're in a kind of disabled group, you get kind of lumped in with everyone. And it's that thing where it's almost like that thing of they, the the organizers with all their best intentions d- just see you as kind of one like just one group, and there's not that kind of appreciation that everyone's individual and um, they all have different disabilities and all different have different needs, and so it's not it's not necessarily. Like like lives that you can relate to, particularly if you're in a group with people who maybe have um, learning difficulties or um, different kinds of needs from you. And yeah, I I I felt exactly the same as you. It was only when I went to university and I was um, on the same corridor as some other people who were disabled and weirdly enough I was the only disabled woman <laughs> and it was all guys that had cerebral palsy and they were the first disabled friends that I had when I was 18 and that I suppose that helped to change my perception because we got on so well we were all you know we were all studying at uni we were I did used to joke like when we we all used to go out to the cinema and we couldn't all travel together because of course there's only two spaces on the bus. So two of us had to go on the bus. Uh one of my friends had a car, so mm-hmm. he got a lift. And then I used to joke, because we'd go to the cinema and I used to say, like, it looks like we're on a we're on a day trip, like the the uh we've yeah. been let out for the day.
0: <laughs> because it's
1: not often you get like a group of disabled people together. And people yeah. just assume that you're kind of like. From a care home or something.
0: Yeah, you're all part of this, you know, disabled people's day out group and it's being organised by a charity or... A charity something. day, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's... I, I completely get what you mean. And I don't know if you've seen this or sort of if you have what your opinions on it are, but are you a fan of the IT crowd?
1: I've never watched it, so I don't know.
0: Oh, there's a really funny episode, and um, if you watch it, it's called The Work Outing, and essentially one of the characters is using the disabled toilet, and he's worried that he's going to get in trouble because he's not disabled, so mm-hmm. he pretends to be disabled, and pretends that his wheelchair is being stolen, so they get him a wheelchair, and um, they are sort of trying to help him, and... He's trying to get away by saying, oh, no, 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 I'm with people. And all of these wheelchair users come out. And it's just assumed that, oh, the people he's with are these other wheelchair users. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's very funny. You, you should watch it. Um, and, yeah, let me know what you think. But I'm really interested. What would you say is the hardest part? Barrier that you've had to overcome.
1: Probably starting university was such a huge step in my life, and my mum has always been my primary carer. Even like, well, even now she does a lot of my care. Um, but until I was eighteen, I'd never had a night away from either one of my parents. Some, either my mum or my dad had always looked after me and I'd never had carers at all and then literally day 1 of university was the first time I'd ever had carers so it was like tell, like thrown in at the deep end wow. <laughs> yeah so it was like I yeah. I moved so I live in Kent now and my my um did my undergrad and my um teacher training at Southampton university so it's quite quite far so it was like new city new environment because I was with students and you know it's lovely because it's everyone my age and then i suddenly had a living carer and it was just terrifying you know not only was i was i doing the whole new student experience so that was like learning how to uh, use the washing machine and going and doing a food shop and things like that and, yeah. and learning to live in a new city and stuff but i also had a a, a carer which i'd never had before and i really it was a real struggle for the first few weeks and I suffered really badly with anxiety and um to the point that I had to go to the GP to get some help because I just I couldn't I you know I couldn't uh, keep food down because I was so anxious and it was horrible um Mm -hmm. and it was also I guess like a massive change of situation not just the care of situation um but it was the fact that your parents doing your care for you, they've done it since you were a child, so they know everything about you. And then you're meeting like a relative stranger. And it's yeah. just, you know, you have to tell someone exactly what your needs are. And it, and when it's even things like it's not just getting dressed, showering, dressing, it's things like, you know, making your toast the way you like and just stupid things like that. That yeah to to, to an ordinary person would be would seem uh, you know, really unusual to have to be that specific. But, you know, I don't like burnt toast. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I have to be specific with uh, how I like it. Um, so I think university was a huge step. And I and I remember I spent the first week ringing home saying, pick me up, pick me up. I'm, I want to come home. I don't want to do this. I really don't want to be here. And my mum is very much of the kind of, well, for this, she was very much like tough love. She was like, I'm not picking you up. You're staying. And I was like, well, I'm going to get a train and I'm going to come home, whatever. And she's like, well, I won't let you in. I'm not opening okay. up door for you. So you're, you're staying there. And she was saying to me, like, realistically, if you come home, what are you going to do with your life? Because you, okay, you've got your A-levels and stuff, but she's always been, she's always been kind of, she's incredibly supportive and, but always of the, always of the kind of, you are always going to have to work harder than everyone else. You're always going to have to go that extra mile. You're always going to have to impress people because unfortunately your disability is always the thing that people see first. And that's, that's going to yeah. be a barrier. And I've kind of had that in my head my whole life. Like, you're going to have to do well at school you're going to have to get good grades because you need that extra you need those qualifications to show people to prove yourself essentially and it's a horrible thing to feel like that you know to have that pressure mm. but i mean she's right you do you know we we do have that thing of of being under undervalued um you know our expectations perhaps are are not as high and It's that horrible stigma of, you know, disabled equals lazy or unintelligent and what have you. So, Um, I mean, she was right. If I'd gone home week one of university, I honestly don't know what I would have done. Plus, you know, I learned so much about myself. I grew up massively. I made amazing friends. Um, I had an amazing time at university. It was absolutely incredible. And um, I loved living independently. I loved um, the whole experience of, you know, being totally in control, whether I went to bed at two AM or, you know, you know, yeah. stayed up all night, did whatever I wanted to do, it was all down to me. And I found it hard to move back home. Um and I I I don't think I'm I'm physically capable of working full time. So for me moving out of home is just not something I can afford to do really very easily. Yeah. And um so I haven't had that kind of twenty four hour care experience living care experience since, and i had you know I had difficult times when I was living on, in, on independently. I had some very dodgy issues with some carers, but um overall it was amazing and i was you know I had some great people looking after me and and you know I met some brilliant friends and had some great experiences and i wouldn't change it, but that first week was was the hardest time in my life
0: I think I think you know there are so many parts of that that if what you just said that really resonate with me I think the first thing I want to say is about your preferences around toast I couldn't (laughs) identify with that more if I tried every new carer I get has to be taught specifically how I like my cheese sandwich. So <laughs> I I completely hear you there. But I think it's so great though that you did push through those first few weeks at university and how difficult they were. And I can't imagine what a shock to the system that was to go from living at home, you know, and sort of that familiar environment with your parents doing your care to being in a different city with new carers, all of that i I know that the first night that I got carers um and they were in my home, so up until that point, my parents had been doing my night care every single night, and when I finally got a carer for the first time at night, my mom was just upstairs, but I yeah. cried so much because I was so scared that it wasn't her doing my care and i felt such a worry about how was this going to go and it wasn't familiar so i mean hats off to you for like you said really jumping in to the deep end and Mm -hmm. doing it all in one go i think that's crazy impressive um i think as well one thing i wanted to touch on of what you said was this fear as a disabled person, that you have to be better than everyone else and mm-hmm. or that you have to work harder than your non-disabled peers. And it's something that I was recently having a conversation with, with some non-disabled people. And I found it really difficult to get them to understand that perspective of, like you said, we are judged first on our disability because particularly for people like you and me our disabilities are extremely visible so people have assumptions and misconceptions about what our abilities are so we have to not just be good we have to be the best or we have to be Mm. amazing and I find that a really difficult pressure to deal with and I'm interested from your perspective as someone who's freelance and who is, you know, an independent novelist, you know, how do you go about addressing that in your line of work? Because I know for me, I work a nine to five, you know, the line manager and all of that. So it's, it feels a lot more straightforward to how I need to excel and what I can do to impress but how do you do that in your situation
1: I think I've always been a bit of a kind of perfectionist in some ways and, and maybe it's part of that in that I'm always quite hard on myself and very much like I need to do better I've got to I've got to do more um i I feel work is quite a i guess quite a sensitive topic in a way and and I know I'm, my mum gets upset at me for saying it sometimes because she'll be like, "Look what you've achieved! You've done so much!" But I, and I guess it's that I guess it's the kind of the whole, like I said before, the kind of capitalist society where your your value in life is very much down to what you do and what you earn. And I am on in, um, employment support allowance, and I don't earn as much as I'd like to. Um, I struggle as I said I I don't think I have the the energy to work full-time or certainly I haven't found a work opportunity that allows me to do that Um, and so as much as I enjoy doing the freelance that I do I would love to have a kind of more permanent stable role because I do feel I mean I love telling people that I'm a writer and I'm so proud of that and I know I've worked incredibly hard to get to that point and I've achieved something which for a lot of people is their dream but I do feel that kind of I guess it is that that pressure on myself that I want to be and I am ambitious like I, I want to be a success I want to have success and feel that I've achieved something really significant and um, I mean that's why I'm really hoping that my book does well when that you know and i and I feel like I carry a lot of that kind of weight of success on my shoulders and that's why I think I have kind of tried to push myself to with my book and with my writing because I really want to achieve something and I want to be I want that to be my I, I, we kind of joked in, in my uh my house the other week because I've done a lot of um, TV and, and radio for uh, like disability issues, kind of like um, access and transport and mm. social care and stuff like that. And my mum jokes and she was like, maybe you won't be known as the, the woman on the TV about the trains now. And I was like, yeah, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I could have, I can wow. do something. Same <laughs> for
0: me, but on taxis. Yeah.
1: yeah, you know what it's like. It's like you <laughs> want to be – you want to be – I guess I want to be successful because I don't know. There's like some deep, I guess maybe it's that kind of ableism thing of like, I feel like I want to be successful to prove that I am and I can be. And it's hard because so much of people's identity is their job and their work for me to be like, Um. I feel because I don't have a full-term job, a little bit of that kind of failure feeling. And I know that I have achieved a lot and I am really proud of what I have done. But I think maybe I'll always want more. And I, you know, I hope that my career as a writer continues like from strength to strength and maybe that kind of feeling will lift a bit. Um, but I think it's, I think unfortunately because we are valued a lot on on what we earn and what we do, that there is a lot of that kind of feeling Mm. tied up with it.
0: I think that's really fair and it's very honest because I know so many disabled people and I struggled with this myself, of this, you know, how can I feel as productive as my, I don't want to say as my mind will allow, but for me... Mentally, I was perfectly capable mm. of doing a full time job, but physically, particularly when I was looking for work, I'm um, out of university, and the work that I wanted to do and still do is in the charity sector, and so many of their offices are in London, but I couldn't live in London because I, like you, live at home and rely on my parents for my care so I had to make the realization that I couldn't physically handle commuting full time. So I was trying to find opportunities that would Mm -hmm. either allow me to work part time from home or to work part time. And I've definitely resonated with what you said about feeling like a failure because you aren't able to do what people typically do. You know, people typically work enough you know, nine to five five mm. day a week job and if it means commuting they commute and I found that a really difficult aspect of disability to accept. Um but I you know like I've I've said I think your I mean your book sounds so exciting and I'm sure it's the first of many pieces of written work that you're going to be doing. And I mean I I'm just so excited to see where this journey takes you. And I wanted to end with one final question for you is what advice would you give to your younger self or others like you? We've talked a lot about, you know, how we were as young people. But yeah, what what advice would you give? Oh,
1: it's such a good question. I think, like I said earlier, my main advice would be like, don't cut yourself off from the disabled community don't feel like that is somehow making you less disabled by cutting down those contacts, because actually it's so valuable to have people going through similar things to you. I think it's, I think I want to, I kind of, I'm going to give myself advice now for my younger self and for my current self, which is don't have the pressure on yourself that you feel like you haven't achieved enough because I do feel that sometimes and I do feel that's one thing that upsets me is because I feel like I've always want to do more. And and I know people think when they hear me say this, they always look at me like, what are you talking about? And I have friends that are like, why do you think this about yourself? Like mm. you've done so much and you've achieved so much, but I think it's because I am ambitious. And I think I'd like to say to my, my younger self, like just go for it and don't feel like, you have to have the same life as your non-disabled peers. You may have, you have much, a much hard, like, to be honest, a much harder life. And yeah. I think because we, we want to fight for equality and we do sometimes minimise the, the the worst sides of it. Um, and, you know, that's not to say we don't have great lives, but sometimes I think we do maybe we don't, like everyone, I guess, we don't talk about the, the negative so much. And it's like with social media, you you show the good sides of your life. And I think I'd like to go back and, you know, say to, to say to my younger self, like, you're going to have hard days, but, you know, you've got a great life. And it doesn't stop you from having the life that you want. You maybe just have to look at life a bit differently.
0: I love that. And I think that that's, that's so honest about the difficulty that comes with disability and it's it's sort of acknowledging this toxic positivity that I think happens a fair bit in the disabled community of Mm. you know oh look all that I'm achieving against the odds and you know yeah that is totally valid and we are achieving and doing things that are amazing but that doesn't mean that it's not Really hard, you know. I—I I know I mentioned this, but you know, when you were joking about your mum saying, "Oh, maybe you won't be the person on TV complaining about trains," you know, and for me, it was it was taxis, and I thought, you know, this is something that really stayed with me. But when I was commuting into work, it for it was difficult to acknowledge that. The things that I achieved in a day weren't just what I produced while I was at my desk writing you know a report on disabled employment. It was also looking at I got discriminated against three times on the way into the office and still managed to you know push through that and to get through a work day despite how really tough that actually is, and trying to stand up for yourself mm-hmm. and your rights in these little everyday situations is tough and I think we're all doing a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. so yeah I just I can't thank you enough for coming on this podcast and telling us about your journey and your story and about your book and I should say that you also, have a podcast Confessions of a Debut Novelist which I think everyone should go and listen to particularly if you are a young disabled person who is considering a career in writing or in creative writing that has nothing to do with disability I think you know Chloe is absolutely a person that you should be following so yeah thank you so much Chloe for taking the time to join us on The Wheelchair Activist.
1: Thank you Emma it's been great and I hope uh people have got something from this conversation and, and i haven't been too negative I, i'm just tried to be honest with my uh my discussions with you
0: no completely i i've certainly learned a lot and i think even in the mentioning of difficulties that we all experience there's so much comfort that can come from hearing someone successful like you that you also find it difficult and it's not just you sitting at home thinking god I wish life wasn't so difficult for me as a disabled person but to hear another person saying that brings such value so thank you for being so honest with us and yeah thank you so much and we will look forward to seeing your book The Sea Women come out this summer thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wheelchair Activist with Chloe Timms I learned so much from speaking with her and really appreciate how honest and open she was about her experiences as a disabled person. We at The Wheelchair Activist are committed to inclusivity and accessibility, and as part of that, we have set up a GoFundMe page and a Patreon where we're asking listeners to contribute what they can so we can invest back into this amazing project to hire a podcast producer to make sure that this podcast is as accessible as possible and to work with an accessibility auditor who will make sure that all of the written content on the wheelchair activist website is meeting accessibility standards. I would love it if you could contribute what you can to this passion project of mine. And if you're not able to, give it a share. And maybe you'll have a rich uncle who can donate to this amazing project. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode. And you can find us on all of the social media platforms. And make sure that you don't miss out on a future episode. Speak to you soon. Bye.